And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. We have a very special episode for you today. Why is it special? We are joined by none other than Jody Dean, the Mm -hmm. kind of philosopher, academic, radical, communist, organiser type person. Um, But you've been standing Jody Dean for a long time. I'm personally a huge fan, and I've been trying to get everyone I know to be a Jody Dean fan for many months, so this is just another step in my evangelical journey yeah and you you've really converted me because i hadn't read much of her (laughs) stuff before but in the run-up to this i read a few things including now you've read way more than me (laughs) (laughs) i've come from behind and lapped you it's the tortoise and the hare Um, (laughs) but her her latest book comrade which i really recommend getting because i think it's it's basically a hundred pages or so yeah. Is, is really, really good and beautiful and has lots of great references and ideas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but I mean, her whole, everything she's written is pretty good, to be honest. We what, what do we talk about? So we, we basically did her greatest hits. We talked about yeah. stuff from Crowds and Party, uh, Comrades. Yeah. yeah, kind of ideas of uh, why communi- communism is the political horizon, what communicative capitalism is, all these like very interesting concepts that she's discussed in her work. Yeah, and she was incredibly generous. I mean, we asked her loads of questions, like sprawling her entire back catalogue, and she yeah. just kind she just kind of went with it. So you know, yeah. it was really great for us to get all these great. questions answered. And we even talked about really specific things to do with like uh, Acorn and momentum and the kinds of things we've we've yeah. been involved in or are involved in, and yeah. comparing it with stuff in the US because she's she was in New York and we were here when we recorded. Um, yeah. Yeah. So basically, it's a really great interview, and let's just yeah. um, let's just spin that track. So Jodie, how are you doing anyway? Like how has lockdown um, been for you? Oh, just weird. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I, the thing is, is in part of it, it's like, um, and it, uh, is the guilt of feeling like uh, I'm a complainer or a whiner when other people have things more miserable, you know, have other more miserable, awful, tragic experiences. And so mm. um, complaining about, being stuck um complaining about the total disruption of life seems so trivial and like a karen or something and <laughs> and so i am um, you know and i and my my daughter who I, I mentioned her earlier um she um finished her had to finish her last couple of months of college at home and you know, she made her year in list and was like oh you know during COVID, i learned um the 
um, immortal science of Marxism-Leninism. I was <laughs> able to connect with um, friends. I became a baker. And I'm thinking, my God, your, her resilience and good cheer is just astounding. I, I, I wish I had um, done the same. I guess, you know, if you're already are learning the immortal science of Marxism-Leninism, um, that's something that I have been enjoying developing during lockdown. Uh, I think especially because, you know, the situation is pretty miserable, I think for everyone, um, even if, you know, we don't necessarily have the worst situation. It's pretty bad and it's especially bleak because we know that there are things that governments can do that our governments are definitely not doing. And reading some of your work actually has been very useful um, for me. And I think also for you, Joe, um, during this time. Oh, yeah, yeah. The, I mean, I really, ever since we arranged the interview, I've been reading a lot of it. Um, but when, when lockdown first started happening, I just read like YA books and like sci-fi. Oh my God, me too. I was reading like <laughs> young adult catastrophe fiction. Yeah, same. It was just like, oh my God, that's how I feel. I'm like a 13 year old in a dystopic future. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so hot as well. And it just felt like um, it was the perfect thing for that moment. Yeah. I mean, I read an excellent science fiction novel, but it was about a fictional pandemic that, you know, also was talking about supply chains. So it was also pretty dark, but it was good. Um, <laughs> Do you remember the name of it? You want to recommend it? Severance. Oh, I read Severance. It was great. Yeah, it's so good, isn't it? Yeah, it was I great. It was really it. good. Yeah. yeah. I haven't actually finished it yet, but yeah. I am also a fan. <laughs> I lent I lent my copy to Joe and he never never finished it. I've had it for like six months now. <laughs> well, now now Jodie Dean's told you to read it. So <laughs> Okay, I will do that. <laughs> um but yeah, I guess we were pretty excited that you were gonna come on the show because I've been a big fan for a while. Um, and we've had some questions, but we can obviously just, you know, also talk. Um, but something that we found pretty refreshing is just a very wholehearted and explicit embrace of communism as what is necessary. So our first question was, I guess, where did communism or your commi commitment to communism kind of begin? Were you brought up with these politics or was there maybe like a particular moment maybe like the movement we're living through right now where you were introduced to it? Um, this is actually a kind of hard question for me. Um, so, because the, the, there's a, a, I would say a kind of strange um, a combination at the beginning and then a lull and then a return. And so the strange combination at the beginning is, um, you know, I was a child of the Cold War era and, um, you know, I was born in 1962, and um, I, my dad, when I was like, I don't know, 10, gave me um, a short book by um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, A Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, and which is oh, actually yeah. about, yeah, it's a great novel, but it's, you know, it's about a, a guy in a, um, a prison camp or in the gulag, and mm. And it's sort of weirdly, it's like, oh, then I became perversely very uh, attracted to the Soviet Union. And I can't, that's sort of perverse, <laughs> right? I don't know exactly why. Maybe it was like, you know, like a kind of area studies, Russia fan thing, but it was really more like, like thinking that the Soviet Union was really intriguing. So there was this 
kind of, of kind of affective orientation. And also I grew up Southern Baptist and the um, there was something, and I think it's in the book of Acts where um, the apostles say something like, and all of their goods were distributed from each um, according to their work to each according to their need. Now, I'm sure I've now mangled that via Marx, but that's what I remember, right? I remember this kind of, of really like apostolic distribution that totally went against like everything that I saw in the, um, you know, among Southern Baptists and among, among white Southerners. And so, but there was this, this, this kind of ethics in there that seemed like the only right way to be. And then the last part of this kind of combination, so we have like, you know, kind of strange, perverse, attractive to the Soviet Union for reasons that make no sense, um, the convict, you know, the sense of this ethics. And then, you know, um, Vietnam War and how awful just the, the U.S. is, the U.S. government yeah. is. And so during the Cold War, for me as like growing up, you know, as a white middle class kid, it seemed like the the alternative to the U.S. was the Soviet Union. And so that became a kind of site of things that were good and better and alternatives and sites of antagonism and resistance. So that was a kind of pretty strong orientation for me. And then I did Soviet studies in college, um, in part because like they had the shortest history. I was going to be a history major and the Soviet <laughs> history was really short. So that's great. Um, and then I went into graduate school to continue to do Soviet studies. Um, but switched to political theory just in time because all my friends in Soviet studies had like no academic future once the Soviet Union collapsed. And mm. so then that kind of, so then there was a sort of academic lull and then I, I returned to this kind of foundation. Fair. If it's like, yeah, I guess that's pretty interesting to think about in terms of, I mean, when we're talking about communism now. Um, so in your 2020, 2020, 2012 book, um, the communist horizon, and you wrote that with respect to politics, the horizon that conditions our experience is communism right now, obviously many, many decades after the Soviet Union uh, kind of has ended. Uh, what do you, I guess, mean by this now, and especially in the world during the pandemic, not really after? Does it mean so, the same thing? Yeah, let me, I want to first talk a little bit about that, that line. Um, so it's, I, I first heard it from a friend and comrade of mine, Bruno Bastilles, at a, a conference. We were in um, Rotterdam at a conference, and he was quoted um, Alvaro Garcia Linares, the vice president of um, Bolivia. And I just thought that, like, I found that completely moving and evocative, right? And it wasn't, and, and Bruno was like, you know, I don't think he meant it the same way that you've interpreted it. I'm like, that's okay. I mean, it really, what, what I liked about it is, is the reminder that under because we are under capitalism, we have not crossed through. We've not like overcome um, the the impulse or the desire or the need or the necessity of communism, right? So unlike the crap that we heard after 1989, with 19, you know, 1989 to 1991, oh, mm. end of history, liberalism and capitalism has triumphed. It's just like 
to me, it was just like the, the reminder, like, oh, Jody, you've been an idiot, right? Of course, the communism remains the horizon. All this stuff about the defeat of the Soviet Union, meaning it's, it is no longer, is just utterly wrong. And that seems now even more true, you know, even, what, 10 months into this God awful pandemic when what is obviously true is that um, the state socialist countries have done, you know, the few, they're not that many, have done much better than the capitalist countries. The most capitalist countries have done absolutely the worst. Centralized planning is utterly necessary for dealing with the magnitudes of the problems we face, which actually we should have already known because of the, um, you know, because of climate change. So I actually think it's like, even though it feels that we've been drifting around, like in this sort of miasmic fog of the coronavirus, it's there's some things that are becoming clearer and clearer and clearer. And the, let's say, the, not just the communist horizon, but the communist imperative is what's clearer now. Yeah, thank you. I think, especially when thinking about, I guess, the left, both in the UK and the US, there have been quite a lot of things happening, especially over the past year. But I think there's also been like a real sense for a while of, you don't really know what to do or nothing that's happening seems to be quite effective. I mean, I know the, like all the things surrounding the Labour Party in the UK have just been extremely depressing. Um, and something that I think was quite interesting when you were talking about the Communist Horizon is how you contrasted it with um, the idea of post-capitalism. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about that, I guess, in relation to kind of left politics and organising. So I, I think that's some of the, at least one way to think about the reason for the um, defeat of um, Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders has to do with the constraints that they're operating in, right? They're, not only the constraints of mainstream um, political parties, but the constraints of holding on to the suppositions of a continuation of a kind of capitalism. And so as long as that is, the mode of operation, you're going to be screwed, right? You're not going to be able to put forward the, the platform and the imperative of organization that's necessary for moving beyond where we're stuck. Um, so I, would, I, I know that seems a little bit abstract, but I think the it just seems clearer and clearer though all the time that the constraints of the suppositions of the continuation of the political systems we have and the economy we have are, are what holds back um, the, the contemporary left, right? And then of course there's all the, you know, the, the anarchists and the identity people and all of that. Those, those are all sorts of constraints, but, but in a kind of more fundamental sense of like, where was the most um, pro, you know, promising opening in the last few years. It has been with um, Corbyn and Sanders. And we can also you know, throw in Syriza and that kind of stuff. But the, the downfall is the constraints of accepting the continuation of the systems. I mean, it's interesting to compare both Sanders and Corbyn as well. Um, obviously, because of their age, they kind of point to a time when the left was actually uh, more powerful within the kind of uh, social democratic seen um but i mean i guess we could contrast those projects with maybe already mentioned bolivia like is, is there something that mass is doing differently that they can be 
actually cooed and kind of come back into power in the very same year? I mean, is it just something to do with the global north and the global south, or is it something to do with how they're doing politics in, in Bolivia and other places where uh, socialist state projects are kind of still in continuance? I, I think it's got to be the latter. I mean, that would be my 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 intuition, my first pass. The, um, and, and not just the continuation of state socialist projects, but the um, ferocity of the mobilization of the people, right? The, the continued organizations of, of, um, of people's popular movements. Rather, you know, the, um, the US and the UK and, and much but not all of, of Europe have really been hampered by the critique of organizations and, and I, the movementism that thinks that that parties are bad and wrong and embraces spontaneity and is against um, kind of continued um, organizational building and organizational structures. And I think that the, um, the situation with the, what is it, the movement of peoples um, and you know, popular movement in, in Bolivia is that that kind, like there's an appreciation for the necessity of of um, of organization and whether or not that's in the state or um, adjacent to the state, either one. And I think having a strong, um, uh, mobilized, organized uh, presence adjacent is what lets them move, let them come come back after um, after the coup after a year. Yeah, I guess kind of returning to what you were talking about um, in terms of left ish movements in the US and the UK kind of holding on to constraints of capitalism and not necessarily entirely seeing them for what they are. Something that I found really interesting in your work is kind of what you're talking about, um, the political ideal to, ideal of democracy and appeals to democracy, um, especially in relation to the concept of community of capitalism. Um, I was wondering if you'd be able to kind of explain that a bit more and why you have said that the appeal to democracy is a dead end for left politics. Um, oh man, that's a big question, uh, especially because I'm afraid it's going to make me go into like a 90 minute lecture, but I'll try to be briefer. Um, <laughs> go for it. <laughs> so, okay. So um, first, um, I use the term communicative capitalism to designate the merger of of technological um, ideals and imperatives and capacities with democratic um, ideals and capacities. And what I have in mind um, was the ideological formation that was really pushed um, in the 90s where we were told, oh, you know, guess what? There's going to be an internet and it'll be town halls for millions and everyone will be able to participate in a great big public sphere and there's going to be democracy for everyone. And then um, activists and NGOs were like, yeah, and the way that we're going to achieve power is with really good websites and then we're going to blog and then there'll be social media. And so every, there was this kind of technological fix that became an ideological formation blurring or bringing together both you know, Silicon Valley venture capital corporations, the US government and leftists and left liberals. But it became like one thing, like this is a uniform political good, whether or not you're on the far left, the medium left, the liberal left, the US government, or um, to, you know, 
tech, technological corporations. And, um, and then the suppositions were all are still um, um, so, so that's the first thing, communicative capitalism designates this. And then we start to see how communication becomes not just this um, part of the ideology, but a vehicle for um, economic exploitation. Um, it, drives, um, the, it drives commodities, it drives supply chains, it drives um, call centers. There's really excellent work on these um, supply chains from the cell phone. Um, all the way through into Brophy is one of the people who's done this really, um, really good work. So, so the capitalism part of communicative capitalism keeps getting, has kept getting stronger as the democratic part has gotten weaker so much to the extent that for the most part at, over the last, I'd say at least over the last six years, the, the valence is that um, social media, um, is really helpful for the far right, right? And we've seen that particularly in the last week, right? That social media, that the supposition is that social media is really something that the right has done better, right has been better with memes, rights have been better, right is the right has been better with like, I don't know, the 4chan, 8chan stuff that, that really it's been something useful um, that the, um, for the right. And so the, demo, the, the, um, the communicative part has slipped away some, but I'd stay, say still for the most part, there's this kind of hegemonic ideology of communicative capitalism and it's material and it's ideational. So that's the first part. And then the second thing then that comes in with this is a particular approach to democracy. Uh, and that is that democracy is um, really provides cover for the continuation of capitalism. And if one under these communicative capitalist conditions is simply calling for democracy, all you're calling for is more capitalism. Because once you start like, when you have to then start to push someone like, well, by democracy, do you mean that we need to make sure that every person has as much opportunity to speak as possible? And then they're like, yes, absolutely. And then they're like, well, how can that be possible? It, because you can't listen to absolutely everybody. So this becomes a strange thing. And then do you mean that Holocaust deniers and um, segregationist and Confederate defenders, all these people should have as much space as they want? And then the person's like a little bit confused, right? So what, what democracy even means starts to unravel. And yet the people who keep appealing to democracy seem utterly oblivious to this. Like, well, that's not what I mean. You know, I'm, I mean, um, good, you know, I mean, democracy, you know, like we understand on the, on the radical left. And it's like, well, then actually, don't you mean, you know, something like socialism or communism? And then it's like, well, I don't want to use those words. So to, to try to make a long story a little bit shorter, what follows from an understanding of democracy in terms of communicative capitalism is a recognition that the concept is super limited, that it actually is incapable of naming a left challenge to the status quo. It's incapable of, of naming a political horizon, right? It's like people like, we hear, oh my God, you know, with the attack on the Capitol was what? An attack on our democracy. So if that's the case, we already got it. Right? We already have this democracy, it's just a little fragile. And then it means that the left is just making the same argument that the far right and freaking Ted Cruz and, and Kamala Harris and all of these different mainstream politicians are, are making like, really? Shouldn't a left politics be much 
um, stronger, dry, draw a decisive line between the establishment, the status quo, and the capitalism than what we have. So the finally then to kind of wrap this up, so communicative capitalism names the merger of democratic ideals with the um, technologies and suppositions of you know, corporate technological capitalist media. And that lets us realize that democracy cannot be a horizon because it doesn't name a division that we need to be able to name to have a left politics. So, yeah, I have a follow-up question about communicative capitalism, actually. But uh, just before then, there's a kind of uh, rocking sound coming from your um, uh, room, Jody. I don't oh, know if that's... My chair or I'm hammering on my table or god no <laughs> my floor is creaky my house is all well that's, that's okay some ambient sound will set the scene I just didn't know if it was um you know if you are slamming the table to emphasize points then you know then I we didn't can just... mean to it's sort of an unconscious <laughs> it's probably good it's probably good emphasis it's like 12 <laughs> angry men or something when they, they all by the 11th hour they're just like slamming the table um, but just to um, to return to communicative capitalism, I guess I was reading uh, about it this week. I was kind of uh, doing a speed read of all of your work that I hadn't gotten to yet. And what struck me was I was thinking about Richard Seymour's recent book called The Twittering Machine, kind of about the social industry. And it was, it was making me think about kind of what would the, what does this mean for the left, this kind of analysis? Because it almost seems as if it means we should be uh, logging off more, uh, logging on less and organizing more and or, or perhaps that we need to think seriously about building our own um, kind of uh, platforms, media platforms and, and coalitions. And I guess I'm wondering about the kind of uh, pragmatic responses to this analysis for people trying to organize in the uh, 21st century from a left uh, direction. So I think the first thing is um, a blog or website is never a, the solution a leftist should go to as um, to any of their problems. So that's the first thing is don't look <laughs> yeah. for a technological fix. Um, the second thing is, um, you know, cops use roads. That doesn't mean we can't use roads. <laughs> so, like one doesn't have to be a Luddite to um, recognize the limits of the technological fix. Um, I absolutely agree with your point that it's important to log off and actually um, organize. And this has been part of the challenge of organizing under COVID is because you can't do a lot of the face-to-face -face work. Um, I mean, people have been doing it nicely through forms of mutual aid, right? That's been an opportunity to reach people, but it's not the same as being able to have um, nice community meetings or going door to door or really um, being able to have repeated face-to-face -face, um, reading groups or even man in office. So I think, um, you know, trying to think that the way to organize is just you know, putting out an event announcement on Facebook or you know, having some really great takes on Twitter I mean, I actually think that maybe we all know this and it's just so chat organizing is so such hard work that people start to feel like, okay, well, I can, that's the least I can do. I can like this thing. 
And that's my my that's the one thing I can do because I, I'm I'm too busy, I'm too exhausted to to do anything else. But folks also have to recognize then that that's part of of weakness, you know. I mean, even if it's all you can do, it's still it doesn't make us strong when that's all we feel like we're able to do. Yeah, I think you kind of touch on something really important in talking about the kind of relationships that we're building when we're doing forms of organizing or mobilizing or posting on the internet in that I feel like probably everyone feels like you know it's kind of easy to be on Twitter but at the same time it's extremely depressing Um, and when you're doing what you can you also feel like you're basically not really doing anything and Similarly, you kind of talk about in your most recent book about the relationships that are necessary for actually organizing in a comradely relationship with each other and the kind of relationships that we need to create in order to build and sustain a mass movement, especially um, as you might contrast it with an alternative such as like allyship as a mode of understanding. Um, that. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that as well. Sure, so I'm gonna um, frame my comments in terms of a contrast between um, what it is to be a comrade and what it is to be an ally. So comrade refers to people on the same side of a political struggle. So you, with your comrades, you, um, you already accept that you guys are fighting for the same thing. Right? You're, not, you're not trying to beat them in an argument. You're not trying to find their political weakness. You're not trying to shame them for not being, you know, not being woke. You're recognizing that you are on the same side of a struggle and that you're in it together, that you have each other's backs. And that kind of relationship is probably impossible to build online. I mean, I say probably because you know, there's always an exception and I don't want to um, you know, shame people who absolutely cannot talk to other people face-to-face for whatever reasons. Um, but in general, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to build that sense of connection and trust that, yes, you will be there for that other person. You will be there and, and, and let this trust build your common strength, right? That's the point of it. The point is not like, oh, I want comrades for me. The point is we are comrades for the sake of the struggle against oppression, against capitalism, for communism, right? We are in this together. We are committed to the fight. Um, And our commitment all shares from this, um, this being on the same side, this shared struggle. So that's to be a comrade. And again, it's not a self-oriented relationship. It's really oriented towards um, the common struggle, we could say oriented towards the communist horizon. With allies, it's really quite different. Um, and, and I think you can see this in the, the kind of awful um, material on allyship that circulates online that is kind of often used in, I don't know, I, I feel like it, this is probably not fair, but I feel it's like promoted by a few NGOs as to do like confidence building exercises or the kind of people who want to help um, introductory college students like learn how to form a club or whatever, right? So it's it's got the, it's, it's this weird kind of, of, of genre of advice and, um, but it's also then online, it circulates mostly as a kind of chastisement of people. So with allies, the supposition is that 
there is a struggle and the ally is external to that struggle, but wants to feel better about themselves by supporting the struggle. And then what starts to happen is the um, ally is, is told that to be a good ally, they shouldn't ask people involved in the struggle about what to do or what to read because that's not like respecting them. They have to go do it on their own. So there's something really individualistic about it. And then they're also said that it's primarily a matter of working on themselves. So there's something super interior, super in internalized and psychological about it, like where politics becomes something just in someone's head or maybe a little better on their tweets or how they act in social media, right? Do they show the, you know, are they properly woke in social media or do they have the right attitude so they can just claim, oh yeah, I'm an ally in the struggle without actually having to take any real political um, responsibility in terms of organizing, fighting or anything. So I think there's something about allyship that's really individualistic, that's really isolating, that treats struggles against oppression as if they were possessions um, rather than um, struggles that one wants to build and organize and strengthen. So ally, allyship seems like the kind of attitude towards politics that's really ideally suited for um, a lack of efficacy under neoliberal conditions because it really just maintains a kind of self-help uh, status quo. So in um, the, the essay, Comrade, you talk about Comrade as this kind of mode of address which suggests a kind of, a kind of political belonging, right? And I guess I'm wondering how enmeshed Comrade is with a party and or a political movement. Because like Siang and I were involved over here on the fringes of Corbynism, where actually everyone was kind of called comrade. And even when you were at uh, constituency Labour Party meetings, you would have very right wing people addressing you as comrade, like within the party. But it was still quite um, intoxicating to be part of that kind of uh, a named culture. Um, but since we've probably been using that mode of address um, less, because we're not currently part of a political party, but we, but we are still like part of um, a political movement through, through like ACORN, the community union, where a comrade is used maybe more infrequently because it is quite kind of broad based in its outlook. But I guess I'm just wondering about the links between that mode of address and the party. I mean, the party in particular, because I'm, I'm a big defender of the idea of the party where, as you say in Crowds and Party, it's uh, not exactly uh, the most popular idea amongst a lot of the left. Um, and lots of people have argued that the party is, is outmoded or um, has been kind of shadowed by like quote unquote totalitarianism. But yeah, so I guess, I guess there's two questions there about the relation between comrade and, and parties or social movements, and then also the party form itself and why you argue that it's kind of return has come, although not quite through uh, maybe the older kinds of party, but maybe something new. So let me start with the party um, part and then go to the comrade part. So um, I think that the we need to, I think that the party form is necessary because it scales, right? It can go from, you know, local, national, international. And 
much, I mean, and basically local organizing can't do that. It doesn't scale. It, it's very hard for um, even cool successes locally to register at a national, much less international level. Additionally, um, a party structure enables um, movement or political achievements to endure, right? Even after you know, even after people have stopped the demo, even after the energy is gone. I was using use an example, right? This summer in the US was the um, a time of the largest out, um, number of marches, outrising, um, uprisings, demonstrations, people in the streets um, ever in US history, right? Around the, um, black, you can call it Black Lives Matter protest, the George Floyd protest. Um, but it lasted uh, struggles against the police or revolt against racism. This um, revolt against racism from this summer was the largest ever in US history in terms of numbers of people um, demonstrating. And now that's um, not the case with um, anti-racist and anti-police um, struggles. And so, you know, what, what does that mean, right? Like, is it just like stop? Was this just like a momentary glitch, a kind of spontaneous, um, you know, movement of rage that then um, dies out? I mean, for people in um, stronger political formations like a party, no, it's not. It's like, we're able to say, okay, that was, we were engaged in the summer and we keep going, right? We, uh, you know, our work in some ways doesn't change that much um, in terms of, you know, building banners, make, um, you know, writing, analyzing, building connections, training comrades. I mean, the work is the same. Uh, but if, but if you don't have a party or some kind of strong organized group, then that, um, then it just collapses. I mean, I, you know, I, t I talked to some young people recently who were saying like, yeah, you know, I was all involved with our anarcho group this summer but now you know, no one's doing anything and it's just gone. And so there's a little bit of a letdown, which actually doesn't really happen, I think, when you're you know, strongly engaged in party work. Um, I, um, I wanna take a little bit of issue. You were pushing a little bit new forms. I, I wouldn't push the new part um, so much myself. I think um, a democratic centralist model is really effective and really necessary, right? Like central, centralizing a struggle can let a group be much more flexible and um, much more able to act quickly. So that would be the the little um, part on the or the part on the party that I want to say. And on comrade, um, I think first and foremost, it's a term for people um, who who are within a political party or a tight political formation. And it's one of the, it's a form of address that lets them know when they're talking to each other, that they're talking to each other as party members, as people in the struggle. And so your example, I was guessing your example, um, at first I thought it was going to, your example was from Momentum, but you said it was included even um, people further right in the Labor Party. I think the mode of address lets people know we're talking to each other now as folks on the same side. And so we're not emphasizing the fact that we have disagreements, right? When we say this, we're trying to build unity. That's our goal, the unity and the solidarity right now. And that's what the appeal to comrade articulates, right? And, and it, it, that's how it, to use an Althusserian term, it's how it interpolates someone as being on the same side. Um, more like, I don't think that 
we can say like, oh, everybody on the left should just call each other comrade. And then all the problems with division and identity politics will go away. Like, no, right? It's not <laughs> going to, it's not that kind of term. It would just, it would lose any sense of power. It's not a solution. It's an example of the kind of solution we need, which is a tight organizational form like the party. Thanks. I guess something else to think about, not necessarily in terms of old forms of the party or new forms of party is, well, parties that are, at least in the UK, for example, parties that are very large and involved in parliamentary politics and also parties that have been involved in kind of a mainstream progressive response to whether we think of the like crisis we're in as, you know, the pandemic or uh, the climate change or just like, you know, capitalism in general, those kinds of parties as compared with maybe other parties that don't necessarily exist yet or don't exist necessarily on that kind of scale. And I guess the question is where we should direct our energies, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, that's such a hard question. Um, I, um, I, I do want to, I've got a, I, one of my reflex answers on this is going to sound harsher than I mean it, but let me do the harsh answer and then pull back from it. And the harsh answer is that I, I have a sense of, of many of us on the left want there to be something great and perfect and powerful that we then join because we know in advance that this is the place to go. And it's not like that, right? It's not like it's not like it's going to be like we have to we have to build what we need and we have to make what we want happen. And then when we to do that building and to you know make what we want happen, can it, it can involve like looking at the groups around us and seeing what's possible. You know, can they can they become better? or if we really don't see anything around us, then creating something new. And that ends up, and the, and the thing that I find challenging there is that it starts to end up being like a, too much of an individual choice. Like, oh, I as an individual have to make this call when I more feel like what, what, what is a kind of important condition for this is, is recognizing the necessity of organizational structure and the necessity of a party form and then letting that realization push one into either joining or building. Um, I'm not sure, does that make sense given what you were asking? Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, th this is basically the kind of conversation we've been having a lot this whole uh, past a few months, like over and over, but um, like we're both currently like more or less in the process of joining um, a party which is kind of uh, democratically centralist as well. It's just, I guess, we're always interacting with our, our friends and comrades who are involved in other things and also just constantly having these conversations and wondering about like a social movement organization like Momentum in the UK. And I suppose it's kind of some, somewhat equivalent in the USA, uh, DSA. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I was curious about your standing towards that as well, because they, they seem to serve um, purposes uh, of cohering movements and expanding a base and, well, uh, sometimes, and, and engaging in political education. 
And then there's all kinds of other projects going on, like, like Siang's very active in um, uh, ACORN, the community union here, and I've just started working for it as well. And we're often wondering about the relations between kind of larger majoritarian, uh, well, trying to be majoritarian organizations and then smaller parties and things like that. Right. Um, I think a friend of mine in Manchester has actually been um, involved in ACORN. Um, anyway, we're going to talk about this off, <laughs> off podcast. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, tell um, me afterwards. So, um, but anyway, um, so first, I would say that these um, big um, social democratic associations in the context of, of right-wing capitalist countries like the UK, and um, the US do really important work, right? They hold space, they um, bring mainstream attention to socialism, to a critical orientation, to the present government, to they, they also open up possibilities for people to think, oh, this, it doesn't have to be the way that our um, um, dominant capitalist class um, and um, you know, dominant state parties tell us there are other alternatives. So I think that these formations like DSA are really important um, and momentum, of course. Um, but I, think, I, I guess I like momentum because of the, the really fierce door-to-door -door work on the um, um, Sanders and the um, Corbyn campaign. And DSA has been really active as well you know, in, try in winning candidates at multiple levels. And it's, an, it's, um, it's great training for people. It gets people really involved and it makes, I actually think one of the most important um, elements of, of, of these kinds of, of um, organizations is it makes people think politically. And so often um, left, um, people who come into left politics from academia or from social media don't know how to think politically at all. It's more like, you know, what's upsetting is when a celebrity, I don't know, like appro culturally appropriate something or um, like that's the, the, the political issue to be worried about for that day. And the thing about doing, uh, about political formations like DSA, um, or momentum is people think they learn to think politically, tactically, strategically. How do you win? How do you build power? What is it? To, what happens when you go talk to these people? Which groups can you get to support what you're doing? Um, so that's an immense, immense achievement. So I guess I, I, I sort of think that um, particularly right now, it's useful to try to support a broad left ecosystem. And that there's a lot of room on that broad left echoes in that broad left ecosystem. My own um, convictions, politics are more on are, are in connection with a democratic centralist revolutionary uh, um, socialist party. And um, I and that's because I don't think that the system that we are in is reformable in any possible way. And if it were reformable, it would be re reform would mean within capitalism. And that means, okay, we want to um, base our politics in continued exploitation. And since I'm against continued exploitation, I don't want to put my political energies there. But I don't think it's, it's useful for the left to engage in, you know, trashing um, um, social Democrats as wussy or anything like that. I mean, that might be someone's belief. It's like, okay, then just join a revolutionary socialist party and get to work there. I guess kind of in a, maybe a similar um, 
recently read an article you wrote, um, I think in the title, something about like climate Leninism, great oh, yeah. title, um, where you were talking about um, things like the Green New Deal or the Green Industrial Revolution as things that have really been kind of promoted by these like kinds of organizations, but which ultimately are dead ends, but are still things that we can learn a lot from. Um, so I was wondering if you'd be able to talk about that a little bit. Um, yes, um, I co-wrote that with um, Kai Heron, who is based in the UK. And one of our, uh, the, the positive spin that we wanted to take from ideal, from notions like the Green New Deal is that they demonstrate um, a conviction that is sort of new in the environmental movement that state action is imperative for climate change. So this might seem like a really obvious thing, but from so much of environmental writing is like, I don't, I don't know, like, you know, recycle and change your light bulbs and cultivate your feelings about nature and, um, you know, then grow a community garden. And what we need to do is have, you know, localism and everything has got to be freaking local. And what the Green New Deal says, no, massive state planning. <laughs> and that's huge. Right, that's a really important shift and a really important opening. And so our goal is pushing that as far as possible and then emphasizing, so we have to build the political force, like the party capable of pushing this state politics. Uh, I guess in relation to that, we actually had a, a fan question submitted by one of our, our biggest fan and also one of our closest friends and also one of our dearest comrades, uh, Rory Dean. He asked, um, how do we build to transform a fringe communist party into a real political force? I think first is don't think of yourself and what you're doing as fringe. Right? Think of it as at the heart of contemporary struggles and recognize that it's utterly imperative to win people over to it. So I think we've got to, I think those of us in um, smaller revolutionary political formations got to stop thinking of ourselves as on the fringe, because if we stop yeah. doing that, we will conduct ourselves much more as what Lenin would say, like, you know, tribunes of the people or maybe basic union organizers, right? Like union organizers know a lot. They've got great skills in talking to people and learning about how to bring people together. And you, know, you don't bring people together by like nitpicking finer points of you know, 100 year old ideology. You bring, bring people together by emphasizing the common interests that we have in let's say overthrowing capitalism or having a centralized approach to um, COVID or um, recognizing the utter crisis of social reproduction that's been brought about by the um, inability of capitalist states to respond to COVID with any bit of a sense of people's actual real lives, right? So we've got to organize where people are. And that means thinking about ourselves as we're winning, we have to win over people who consume mainstream media, who may not be hostile to us, may just be confused by us. But if we think of ourselves and act as fringe, we will remain fringe. Yeah, well, I guess the resolution going forward is to think of ourselves as mainstream, because we should be. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's good. What is it? There's the... Um, 
uh, Brecht poem, and I don't remember the name of it, but um, there's a kind of line like, it's the most obvious thing in the world, right? Communism is the common sense, the most obvious thing in the world. And I think if we think that and operate that way, um, rather than kind of cultivate our own um, unique esoteric specialness, then we're much more likely to be successful. Thank you very much for coming on. Is there anything else that you would like to say? A parting no, word? No, I was, I was really um, enjoyed the conversation with y'all and thanks for having me on. Yeah, we, we know a lot of people here who actually identify as communists, but their practice and perspective could often be more better described as kind of anarchist or, I mean, yeah. some people call it folk politics or whatever. But I think there's a kind of organisational turn going on the last few years. Like in yes. my trade union, you've seen lots of people who are involved in Corbynism now going into their trade unions and... Um, yeah. That is super exciting. Yeah, I, I have been thinking... Um, and I couldn't decide, am I just being super hopeful about an organizational turn or is it real? But I'm, I'm since you've said it, I'm going to say like, oh, yeah, it's real now. Yeah, good. Yeah. Wow, your impact. <laughs> I really think it is. Like completely anecdotally, I've seen people who were really involved in momentum now basically completely give up on labor, but get like really involved in the National Education Union. Um, but also with lots of like, you know, quote unquote, ordinary uh, educators. And it's like really exciting to see it happening in real time. So this, this is super exciting. I think now we can even say the widely known organization. <laughs> Um, yeah. it, it'll just be people will just start assuming it. And then it's just like, when did that happen? It's like, I don't know. We just yeah, we're just making it come into being. Yeah. It's happening. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's already happened.